0: Uh, because it was through serendipity uh, and really almost uh, accidental circumstances that I became a scientist. Welcome
1: to Perspectives from the Top. I'm Chris Robart, global keynote speaker with unique leadership experience from military, business, and government. Best selling author and your guide to greater success. Together, we'll discover powerful insights from the world's leading thinkers, doers and trailblazers, the must-know trends, thought-provoking revelations and practical actions you can use immediately. This is your exclusive and personal shop of insight and inspiration to help you get to the top. Welcome to you and all of our perspectives from the top community of listeners around the world. It's great to share the insights of such successful people with you to help you get to where you want to be. My guest today is Bob Lefkowitz, best known for his groundbreaking discoveries that reveal the inner workings of an important family of cell receptors inside our bodies, which essentially makes 30 to 50% of prescription drugs work, for which he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. He's currently James B. Duke Professor of Medicine and Professor of Biochemistry and Chemistry at Duke University and an investigator with the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. In his early career he worked as a physician, spending time in the public health corps with Dr Anthony Fauci, followed by work as a cardiologist. And he then made his extraordinary transition into biochemistry, which would lead to his Nobel Prize. Bob shared the prize with Brian Kablica, who he had previously mentored. When he received the Nobel Prize, the press corps in Sweden covered him intensively, describing him as the happiest laureate. Bob has been conducting his research and his mentoring of research trainees for nearly 50 years. Bob, thanks so much for joining us on Perspectives on the Top, taking some time out of your valuable time to give our listeners some insights into your career and what you've achieved. Your career focus was initially being a physician and you know, we've interviewed many people on perspectives from the top and and they do sort of jobs they're passionate about but from my experience being a physician to some degree isn't actually a job it's it's more a vocation um, and a lot of people don't quite understand that vocational clinical world in relation to what they do in an office. Uh, and I was reading your book and you were talking about that it all revolves actually around standard operating procedures. If this happens, we then do that happen. We then do that. But it must be stressful. So so can you give us some, uh, some insights into that world that is vocational and focused on making people better?
0: Well, the word I often uh, I think vocation is a good word. Uh, A synonym for that in my mind, and it's the one that I always think about when I think about how I uh, came to go into medicine, is the word a calling, to have a calling, experience a calling. We generally uh, associate that term with clergy, having a calling to the cloth or to the church, but you can really have a calling to almost any uh, particular occupation. Uh, and for me, the concept of a calling means a i don't like the word mystical, but it probably obtains a a, a feeling that uh, you are meant or destined to do a certain thing. Uh, and I experienced that at a very, very young age. I would say seven or eight. Uh, And the impetus to that was my family physician, a guy named Dr. Joseph Feibusch, a general practice physician in the Bronx, New York City, who made house calls. And he would come to the house if somebody was ill, uh, myself or my parents. Uh, He would lay on hands. He carried with him this black bag from which he could produce any number of uh, magical objects, a a reflex hammer, a stethoscope, an otoscope prescription pad. And he knew all this stuff that other people didn't know. Uh, And I was just taken with that. Uh, And it it seemed to me at an early age that there was no higher purpose that one could devote oneself than to be like Dr. Feibus, because he knew all this stuff and he could use it to make people feel better. And so without even realizing that I was experiencing a calling, uh, by age seven or eight, I knew that I was going to grow up to be just like Dr. Feibusch, and uh, I was totally focused on it. And, you know, unlike so many of the kids that I see today, as well as my own five children that I raised many years ago, uh, who are, you know, trying to find themselves and figure out what you're going to do. I mean, there's really nothing uh, more clarifying for a young person than to experience a calling. Uh, whether it's to medicine or the church or to law or whatever it is, I never had to worry about what I was going to do or, or, you know, everything fell into place. Uh, and uh, I must say, the the early years of my career as a physician was some of the most gratifying that I've ever experienced. Uh, I loved what I was doing. Uh, and to this day, if you were to say to me, even having now spent most of my life more more uh, dedicated to research than the clinic. So yeah. I did both for 30 years, 35 years. If you asked me what was the greatest privilege of your life, I would say it was to be a physician uh, and to for, you know, a number of years have the ability and the opportunity to uh, use my knowledge to alleviate suffering, uh, on occasion cure a disease, uh, and on some Clear occasions to save a human life, and uh, I just don't know that there is any higher uh, experience you can have than that. So, I mean, for me, that that was and is remains just an amazing experience.
1: I, I, I think I think you're so right because one, the, the as you say, you know, you're saving lives, are uh, but also there are also many people out there who sort of finish. Um, go to university. And even at the end of university, they've done a, a degree in something, but they're still saying, I'm not sure what to do. And they have, there is no lack, there is a lack of clarity about what they want their life to be about. And it's just, but there's a small group of people like you and other people where there is this focus on on something that is a calling and, and it's truly special because it enables you to focus all your efforts passionately on what you want to achieve Uh, and, and, and that sort of and that links into to your medical career as well because as you were going through that you know you were doing the clinical stuff you were getting making people better albeit, as as you told me, in certain circumstances of, of exhaustion. But but then, then you started getting this sort of insight into perhaps there might be this little area called research where you weren't doing the sort of standard operating procedures, but you were sort of maybe trying a few new things, seeing this work. As I like to sort of think about, it, a sort of medical entrepreneur. Um and just sort of maybe give us some insight into the start of the medical part of your career, the clinical part, and how this sort of research passion sort of crept in from the side.
0: Well, it, it's a really, uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, I, I wrote an autobiographical essay uh, four or five years ago, and I titled it uh, A Serendipitous Scientist uh, because it was through serendipity Uh, and really almost uh, accidental circumstances that I became a scientist. So here's the story. I was so focused on becoming a physician early on that uh, I loved science, but the idea of actually producing original science was never part of the equation for me. I had no interest in doing research. And all the way through college and especially medical school, whenever I had elective periods where I could have done research, I never did it. In medical school, I always took clinical electives. And I would have happily, after medical school, finished my residency training and gone into practice were it not for a cataclysmic event, which was going on in the 1960s. And that was the Vietnam War. So I graduated in 1966 from Columbia Medical School. And at that time, Uh, there was a lottery draft for all men over 18. But for physicians, there was no lottery. There was just a draft. There was conscription. All physicians in training were given a deferment uh, through medical school graduation. And then you were given a further deferment for one or two more years of postgraduate clinical training. And then you were drafted. You went into uh, either the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the United States Public Health Service. Uh, And you could pretty much be guaranteed of spending one of your two conscripted years uh, in Vietnam, which was not a a popular choice. It was a very, very unpopular war. Now, your best chance of avoiding going to Vietnam was to get a commission in the Public Health Service because they had a number of uh, posts, if you will, here in the United States, especially... And research institutions like the National Institutes of Health and the CDC, the Communicable Disease Center. Uh, But it was very competitive, for obvious reasons, to get those appointments and commissions. Uh, It was very merit-based. And I was fortunate in that I had very high academic standing and strong recommendations. So I got the commission in the public health service and was assigned to the National Institutes of Health where I spent 20% of my time taking care of patients in the clinical center and 80% of my time assigned to a research laboratory where I first began doing research, not because I was burning with desire to do research, but because I was essentially drafted and told to do research. Uh, And so that's what I did for two years. And for the first year, uh, or even more, things did not go well. And I experienced something which I had never experienced uh, before in my li- young life, and that was failure and protracted failure. Nothing worked, uh, further convincing me that I had no interest in research. Uh, so I decided I would just finish my time there, which was a two year hitch, and then move on with my clinical training. Well, after about a year and a half or so, uh, things did begin to work and I got a taste of what success was like, you know, producing original new information. But I must say the the passion still wasn't there. So I went off to finish my clinical training at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And for six months, next six months, I threw myself into the clinical work, loved it as I always had. But now I began to have the feeling that something was missing. Because as I've told you, In clinical medicine, it's not that things are cut and dried, but there is a standard way of doing things. Of course, there are variations, and making the diagnosis can be challenging. But in general, you you follow certain procedures. Uh, But in research, it's all freeform. I mean, you're doing things that nobody ever did before, uh, and somehow, after six months of doing full-time clinical work, I began to really feel something was missing and that what was missing was the challenge of day to day, getting data, doing experiments, doing research. And so I found another mentor uh, and I started sharing my time, splitting my time from between uh, doing research and finishing my clinical training. I did that for the next couple of years and then I came to Duke in 1973. uh, And by then I was really hooked on the research uh and uh i guess they would say the rest is history <laughs> you certainly haven't looked back
1: since then have you um,
0: no i have not at all always looking forward absolutely
1: looking forward moving forward all the time so when you're doing research obviously not everything goes right and i think you know you get these patches of things going wrong where it never rains, but it pours and everything seems to go wrong. But how do you, how do you respond to that to at least sort of try and keep your sanity and trying to keep your motivation?
0: This is one of the most difficult things that one has to deal with in research because basically most of what we do fails. I mean, the overwhelming majority does. Uh, And for young people, when they're first starting out, as I was uh, back in the 60s, they're not used to that. I mean, in life, much of what you do, uh, whatever it is, is working. Uh, But here, most of what you're doing doesn't work. Uh, And it takes a great deal of experience to come to grips with that. And one of the important things about mentoring, which is a subject near and dear to my heart, is teaching people, first of all, that that's the reality, uh, and that you have to expect that. But the other part of that is that you have to look at failure. You have to sort of somehow change the way you frame it so that the failure is really part of your ultimate success. Because, you know, it's a matter of learning smart, as they say. Uh, Every experiment that fails teaches you, uh, you know, I'm reminded by this uh, famous quote by uh, Thomas Edison, the very famous inventor, uh, who said that, uh, you know, he comes up with 300 ideas a year for inventions and uh, only, uh, only one of them actually ever works. And they said, well, that must be awful frustrating. He says, no, 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 no. I mean, uh, it means that there are 299 times a year I, fi- I have figured out something which won't work. I mean, in other words, I've learned something that doesn't work. And so that gets me to the point that the one that does work. Uh, So you can kind of reframe things. But, you know, I've been fortunate in my career to listen to talks by, as you have, uh, probably more than I, from all manner of people who have been extremely successful, whether in science or legal profession or entertainment or the military, whatever. And if there is... A single common thing that they have to say, they all talk about how badly they failed early in their careers. Failure after failure after failure and then success. Uh, And so I I think I often tell that to my trainees uh, that, you know, the failure is just a a part of the experience. In fact, I give a talk to the research fellows at Duke University Uh, I'd say at least every year, sometimes more than that, uh, different groups call how how to deal with failure and rejection in research. Uh, and uh, in fact, the title is uh, "How to Deal with Failure and Rejection." That's just the title. And then I always my opening line is always, "This is not about your uh, sex life. Uh, <laughs> this is this is about your career." Uh, so anyway. Uh, yeah failure is ever present, but uh, you know looked at in the correct way or in good way uh, it 's just something you have to accept
1: uh, well I think see, what I think is really interesting uh, about your research world is that to some degree you know all the other professions that you quoted the military legal and, and, and all the rest of it the the failure level is nowhere near the figures that you 're talking about and and i think for our listeners it's it's really instructive that that you know if you're in a, a legal job or something you know you might get something like 80% success 85% success and and 15% failure and and if if people in the legal profession were getting 2% success rate they'd either be out of a job or they'd be throwing themselves off window ledges in their offices so the reason I, I asked you the question is that it's so instructive because I knew that your, your success rate was so much lower. And the point for our listeners is that if you in the scientific research world can get through that level of failure, then all of us are sitting out here in the normal world where we are getting sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're freaking out because we've had one failure out of 20, then, you know, we just need to put it in perspective and, and listen to what you guys in the research world are saying. That you know, if you have the right mindset, it's not as bad. And the failure is a learning a learning experience to ensure more success in the future.
0: Very well put. Let me tell you a little illustrative story, uh, which, which is uh, in my book, by the way, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, a memoir that I've written uh, which tells a lot of my stories, but uh, I, I have a uh, a ritual that I go through every year during the week between Christmas Day and New Year, which is very quiet here at the university. And I come into my office and I uh, review the previous year's work in my laboratory. And the starting point for that is a uh, a sheaf of handwritten notes, maybe three or four pages long, which I prepared exactly a year before. I've been doing this for my whole career. Uh, and on that list are all the projects I envisioned that we would work on over the subsequent year, ideas, etc. And then I sort of uh, put letters next to them, A, B, C, with the letters refer to how exciting I think the project would be. And I tried to work on only the most exciting A projects. Okay. Now, a year later, when I come back to these, I go through and I see what work, what's working, what didn't work, what turned out to be totally stupid, what turned out to be so stupid that we realized we're not even going to work, etc. So I was working on that exercise. Uh, when a, a young uh, colleague of mine, not, not a mentee, but somebody, a more junior professor, came by and said, hey, what are you doing? I explained it to him. Uh, and uh, he said, well, how are things going? I said, well, I'm having a, a pretty good year. I said, how about you? He said, oh, yeah, everything's going great. I said, well, what fraction of your projects that you're working on on your lab would you say are working? He said, I don't know, 80, 90 percent, something like that. I said, that's great. He said, how about you? Uh, and I said, uh, well, I'd say about 15 or 20 percent. He said, what? <laughs> the great Bob Lefkowitz has only uh, a 20 percent success rate of, in terms of projects that are working? I said, yeah. He says, well, how do you feel about that? I said, great. He said, really? He said, why? I said, well, you know, every once in a while, my success rate drifts up and maybe 40 One year, I said, 50% of the things we were trying to do were working. And I got very uh, unhappy about that. He said, why would you be unhappy? I said, but look, I said, if half of what I'm trying to do is working, I'm not challenging myself very much. I must just be picking off low-hanging fruit and and, and starting to work on projects which weren't all that important. I said, if I'm really challenging myself and working on important things, there is no way that the majority of what I'm working on could work. Well, he was kind of chastened and, uh, you know, we ended the conversation. Over the years, he has told me repeatedly what a profound effect that conversation had on him and how it has reshaped the way he approached his own research program, which I can attest I have seen myself. And I'll tell you the truth. Uh, This conversation was 15 or 20 years ago. He has become a much better scientist and is making much more substantive and significant contributions uh, in his area than he did before uh, and he always comes back to that conversation that he realized that if he was going to really challenge himself he had to accept that the success rate is going to be a lot lower
1: that's a, Bob that's, that's that's a really really powerful comment but but I think that's not that's not just true about the world you're in with research that comment about challenge. And unless you are challenging yourself and you're challenging the people around you um, and sometimes things go wrong, then you are not pushing things. You're just doing what you've always done.
0: And I I think that to some extent, that's what moved the bulk of my effort from clinical medicine to research, because... I just felt that, you know, after you treat your 100th case of hypertension or your 200th case of heart failure or whatever it is, yeah, it's just sort of, it becomes too routine. And I didn't want routine. I, and I often tell people no two days for me are the same. Every day when I come in, I don't know what's coming at me in the way of data and what problems will be with our experiments. And that's what I like. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that I uh, have avoided various other types of, of careers is that I, I really do like to be challenged and, and, and to see new things every day. And in science, you do. You, you just never know what curveballs are coming.
1: That's, that's such a good point for listeners, I think, to think about that. you know Do you want a completely predictable every day being the same, or do you want – some element of challenge. But from the strategic organizational perspective, the fundamental point has to be that unless the organization is challenging itself, unless things are sometimes going wrong, it cannot possibly be changing and developing and improving. Because if if it's not experiencing the occasional failure, it can't be challenging itself, which means
0: it's not going anywhere. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Uh, And, of course, my experience is in science, not in business or large organizations. Uh, I've never run anything larger than my laboratory, uh, and that's by choice. I never wanted to be a department chair or a dean, and I had many opportunities in my career. Uh, And the largest my laboratory ever got was pretty big, was about 30 people, but that's very big for a lab. Now it's about half that. Uh, But, yeah, I I love the challenge. I I love the surprises. There's there's nothing that makes me happier than – and I have this experience all the time. Then one of my trainees coming in and saying – with a long face saying, hey, Bob, the experiment didn't turn out the way we thought. And my initial reaction to that is great. (laughs) Tell me what happened. You know, because if it turns out the way I expected – then I probably didn't learn much. I mean, because I kind of knew enough to already predict how the experiment would turn out. But if it turns out different than I predicted, then I'm then I'm going to learn something by definition. So, uh, but yeah, the trainees it takes a while uh, till uh, till they understand that you have to you have to
1: teach them to insulate themselves from failure uh, and and. Yeah, you know you you but the but the beauty of it is that you know, you're you're sort of leading a lab, and the beauty of it is that that how you do that to sort of pick people up off the ground is is with humor so to talk to talk to uh, give our listeners some insight into how when you're leading those trainees and collaborating with them in the lab how how you do that and and how you use humor just to keep everybody optimistic and going in the right direction.
0: I think humor is a a very, very important part of what we do. Uh, I think in science, it's particularly uh, important and I use at my lab meetings, which I hold weekly, uh, I use a liberal amount of uh, humor. Uh, I find if I can get people laughing, which I often do, uh, it seems to encourage or foster or nurture. A spirit of creativity, because, I mean, let's think for a minute about what what is the process of saying something funny? What what is what is humor? I mean, basically, it involves seeing relationships between things that you might not ordinarily put together. It often involves juxtaposing uh, things which seem totally uh, not in the same uh, frame, uh, and. In the moment that somebody appreciates what you're doing, if you're telling a funny story or a joke, in the moment that they see the joke, they're making a little discovery. That's what seeing the joke is. You're making a little discovery about what what was just said. You, in, in the first instant, you don't get it, there's a pause, and then you get it and there's laughter. Okay. So that's a little discovery. Uh, you're seeing, putting things together that you might not ordinarily see. And, of course, that's exactly what making discoveries in the laboratory is. It's a matter of looking at things, data, that, where somebody might not see anything, uh, but somebody else does see something. They're putting things together. And so that's why I think the process of humor, I'll give you an example, uh, which one of my kids reminded me about just the other day so at each of my five children's weddings uh i always made remarks i mean you know sort of a toast and i always would tell a few stories uh and uh when my youngest got married about 12 or 13 years ago uh i came up to the microphone and so he's the fifth now of my five children getting married and this joke is probably uh not not meant to be offensive in any way but Uh, So the the first thing I said was something along the lines of, well, you know, Josh, when your mother told me that she was pregnant for the fifth time, uh, I wasn't immediately uh, all that excited about it. I said, because I had just read a couple of days before that every fifth child born in the world is Chinese. (laughs) Now, what happened was the following. After a brief uh, period of quiet, there was a burst of laughter. And then a few microseconds later, another burst, and then another burst. So you had different groups of people who got the joke at different points in time. I'll never forget it. And it went on for four or five seconds. Some people got it like that. Others, it took another second. And uh, until they put together these two completely crazy things that have nothing to do with each other. And often, to me, that's what making the the scientific discovery is all about. You're looking at two sets of data or whatever, and they seem to be... And then all of a sudden, you see that these two seemingly unrelated things really have a common basis and, and that there's something in common, even though they seem totally unrelated to each other. And so... That's why I think the process of humor uh, is very important. Now, I always tell people there's a caveat. I believe that everybody is born with the inherent ability to uh, appreciate humor. But not everybody is able to be funny. And there's kind of a bimodal distribution. People are either funny or they're not funny. And if the important thing is self-awareness. If you are not funny that's important not to try to be funny because there's nothing more cringe inducing. And you know what I'm talking about than an unfunny person trying to be funny. Uh, it, it's really uh, makes your skin crawl and you want to go under the desk. Uh, so that's the caveat. Uh, if you're not funny, it's fine. Just don't try to be funny.
1: <laughs> but the point it's, it's that it goes back to the sort of emotional stuff and it goes back to the fundamental principle that you need to be you. And don't try and be somebody who you're not. Because whenever people try to do that in in any way, if, you know, if I tried to be a scientist or, 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 or you're a leader and you try and do something which isn't naturally you, other human beings have a very, very good antenna that detects that you are not being genuine. You know, when I'm talking to people, to, to, to leaders about, you know, don't just think that people are listening to your words. That You know, their mind is reading thousands and thousands of body language signals, second by second. And a human mind can work out if there is a contradiction between the words
0: and the body language extremely quickly. I could not agree with you more, Chris. I mean, if you were to ask me... Uh, because I ask myself this uh, increasingly as I get older, what are my core values? W- what values do I most appreciate in people and in myself? Way up on that list would be authenticity. I like people to be authentic, and I try to be as authentic as I can in virtually every circumstance that I'm in. Uh, and you know, people often ask me for advice about mentoring and this and that, which I do have a lot of experience with. And I have a lot of ideas about mentoring, but probably the most important one is that there's no one exact right way to be a mentor because each of us is a different human being and you have to mentor. There are certain principles that everybody can use, but you need to mentor in your way and your personality may be very different than mine. Uh, and, and you meant it differently. I shared the Nobel Prize with one of my former trainees, Brian Kobilko, who is a professor at Stanford. Uh, and like myself, he has a reputation, and I think very well deserved in this case, of being an outstanding mentor. You couldn't have two more different personalities than Brian and myself. I am extroverted. Uh, I enjoy conversation, et cetera. Brian is painfully shy which he's overcome uh, to some extent uh, and just has a totally different personality and yet we're both very good at mentoring. Uh, but I can guarantee you we can't mentor in the same way because we're so so different as people. So I think the key to mentoring is first of all, you've got to be you, you've got to be yourself and do it your way
1: and 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 so you know you mentioned Brian so we, we sort of we're into the we're in the interview and maybe, Maybe it's time for you to tell our listeners a little bit about what your work has been focusing on to some degree for 30, 40 years.
0: 50 and 50
1: 50 by now, just a simple explanation about what you've been working on and how receptors work in our bodies and what your discoveries have done.
0: So, uh, Basically, uh, when I started my work, which is, golly, almost 55 years ago, uh, there was an idea which was very controversial, uh, that there might be specific binding sites on cells that hormones and drugs could bind to, and thereby initiate their actions. Uh, And they were referred to as receptors. But frankly, it was a controversial idea, uh, and there was really no proof that they existed. But the idea seemed very compelling to me. So I set out to try to prove that.
1: Sorry, sorry. So basically for, for our listeners, so obviously within all the cells in our body, if we want a drug to work, somehow the cell has to get a message of what it's supposed to do for the drug, because unless that message is
0: passed to the cell, the drug is useless. Exactly right. So to give an example... Uh, let's take adrenaline. Now, adrenaline, also known as epinephrine, our body makes that, but we also use it as a drug. Uh, And it does many wonderful things, uh, to be sure. But, so for example, one of the things adrenaline does is it makes your airways dilate. So if somebody's having an asthma attack and they're wheezing because their airway is constricted, uh, you give them adrenaline and it dilates. Well, how does the adrenaline know To work on your airway uh, and not on your eyeball uh, or on a thyroid gland and so the idea would be that well maybe there are special sites uh, on the airway cells uh, that adrenaline can fit into and that's the concept of a receptor so you can see it as the, uh, the receptor being a lock and the drug or hormone like adrenaline being a key. Okay, And there has to be a complementarity, an exact complementarity in shape of some site on that receptor, the lock, in order for the key to fit in. And if it does, then it can turn and do something. Alternatively, a drug might fit into that site and not do anything, but it would still block the ability of the adrenaline to work. So, for example, picture that you put a a key in and then broke it off. Okay. Nothing's happened. But now the guy with the real key comes, he can't get in there because there's something jammed in there. That's what we call a blocker. So when you hear about beta blockers, for example, these are drugs which block adrenaline receptors. Anyway, so what my work has been was to develop a whole uh, raft of new techniques and technologies to first of all prove that there was such things, to then isolate them, purify them, figure out what they were, how they were regulated, And then realized by uh, essentially what we call cloning the genes for the receptors to figure out what their molecular structure was. Uh, And from that, uh, to figure out that there was really a huge family of these receptors, which included the receptors for adrenaline, which is what I was initially working on, but including a thousand different kinds of receptors for all kinds of hormones and drugs. Uh, and figure out how they are regulated. Bottom line, uh, now, many years later, uh, people in the drug industry have used this information to develop drugs. And in fact, drugs which target receptors in this family, which includes not just uh, receptors for adrenaline, but receptors for dopamine, serotonin, uh, parathyroid hormone, all manner of things, and also in this family of receptors. And when I say family, I mean they all have very similar structure. Okay. Uh, receptors, it's how we smell. Smell receptors are in this family. Taste receptors, vision receptors, uh, something called rhodopsin, that's how we perceive light. Uh, and the bottom line is 30 to 50% of all the drugs uh, that are sold today. Uh, therapeutic drugs are drugs which target members of this family. So, even though I was always working at a very basic or fundamental level, the work has had uh, a tremendous impact on clinical medicine and therapeutics. You, know, you, you quote the fact that perhaps thirty to fifty percent of
1: prescription drugs that our listeners are taking have been enabled by the work you've done there.
0: I think, in a sense, that's really true, uh, although boggles my own mind. I mean, so many common drugs, I mean, for example, ones that people would immediately come to mind would be things like beta blockers or adrenaline or antihistamines. I mean, just just to name a few. In the United States, uh, there are uh, 700 FDA-approved drugs uh, which target these receptors. Uh, and that's, as I said, about a third uh, to a half of all, all drugs.
1: As a result of all of that work over all of those years, Bob, on the 10th of October, 2012, early in the morning, you got a telephone call from somebody. (laughs) And and tell us what that telephone call was and tell us what happened when you had your week away as a result of that telephone call.
0: (laughs) Okay. So uh, what Chris is referring to is a call from Stockholm Uh, telling me that I had won the Nobel Prize in chemistry uh, and that I was sharing it with my former trainee, Brian Kobilka. Uh, The backdrop to this is that as my career had progressed, uh, people began to talk about the fact that I might be a potential Nobel laureate. Uh, I would say that started about the time I was maybe 50 or in my early 50s. Now the Nobel Prizes, as you may or may not know, are announced the first week in October. So we're coming up on it, and they're announced in a set order: one prize each day. Monday is Medicine or Physiology. Tuesday is Physics. Wednesday is Chemistry, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so uh, you know, I started thinking about it, and during that week, first week of October. Uh, you know, I kind of wonder when I went to bed Sunday night, was I going to get a call? Never happened. Uh, almost 20 years passed. And people were always saying, Bob, when are you going to get the prize? It's got to happen this year. And always expectation it didn't happen. So I finally kind of given up on it. So here it was uh, in 2012, not on Monday, which is medicine or physiology prize, but on Wednesday, Chemistry. And at 5am, I feel my wife poking me in the ribs and waking me. Uh, And uh, the reason she was waking me is because I sleep with earplugs. uh, And so I don't hear the phone, but she does, fortunately. And she said, there's somebody calling for you uh, with a Swedish accent. That was interesting. Uh, so I pick up the phone, and they didn't keep me waiting. Very quickly, a female voice with a thick Swedish accent said, "Professor Lefkowitz." I said, "Yes." She says, "I'm going to put Doctor so and so on. He's the chairman of the uh, Nobel Prize Committee in Chemistry." So I realized what was up, and he told me uh, that I had won the Nobel Prize. I asked him, "Was I sharing it with anybody?" And he told me Brian, and of course that was even, even more filling and exciting. Uh, people say, how did it feel? Uh, Did you jump up and down? And the answer is no. It was more a quiet sense of satisfaction and almost like the monkey is off my back. Uh, People have said to me uh, over the years, what was the best thing about winning the Nobel Prize? And I say kind of tongue in cheek, but there's an element of truth in it. Well, the best thing was knowing that for a fact, I would never again in my life have to answer the question, Bob, when are you going to win the Nobel Prize? Uh, and that was a good feeling. And the experience of going to Stockholm uh, to receive the prize is is just beyond, uh, it's over the top. And as I say in my uh, memoir, the funny thing happened on the way to Stockholm. I have a whole chapter uh, dealing with this experience. But uh, it, it's not just one day, but it's really more like about a 10 day uh, journey. Uh, it starts, interestingly, by visiting with the President of the United States, who for the last 60 years uh, has had a tradition of meeting with all the American uh, Nobel laureates as they are on their way uh, over to Stockholm to get the prize in December. Uh, in this case, it was President Obama, and there were five of us that year. Uh, we got to meet with him in the Oval Office, which was amazing. I would point out that the only president, you won't be surprised to hear, who never met with any Nobel laureate during the four years he was president was President Trump. Uh, for some reason, he opted not to do that. Once you're over there, they treat you like royalty from the moment you step off the plane uh, you have a, uh, like an attaché that they assign to you, like a minder who gets you everywhere. You have a, uh, a BMW uh, 7 Series limousine devoted just to you and your uh, spouse and family uh, with an assigned uh, chauffeur. Uh, it's all absolutely amazing. Uh, there are banquets with the king and the queen uh it just goes on and on and then the uh the nobel prize ceremony of course is remarkable uh and uh yeah it's just it's just incredible and i i was on a it was like i was taking adrenaline uh the whole the whole week and it was wonderful it was like being in a fairy tale because it was a very cold winter over there so it snowed every day it was really like being in a fairy tale it really was
1: it's It's interesting one of the things that I sort of read in your book was was a comment that actually one of the things that is important to scientists to to some degree is not specifically the prize itself, but the fact that the prize is validation for your work and the fact that it's made a difference.
0: I think that's very, very true. you know. Nobel, in his will when he established the prizes, uh, more than a, well over a hundred years ago, uh, said that the prize in each field should go to that uh, set of discoveries. Uh, I forget his exact wording, but which was which have brought the greatest benefit to mankind. Uh, and actually, the way he said it, it was those discoveries which over the preceding year have made the greatest benefit to mankind. Now, by and large, the prize almost never goes to somebody whose work was just over the last year. Typically, my case turns out to be very, very typical uh, in the sense that the most salient discoveries I made were probably made 20 to 25 years before I got the prize. And in fact, that's typical. There have been studies of this. Uh, And, uh, you know, and I think the reason for the long delay is the committees. It takes time to see what the impact of discovery is. Now, sometimes that's not the case. Uh, Something which hasn't won the Nobel Prize, for example, was the underlying discoveries which made COVID vaccines uh, possible. Uh, I would have given the prize for that last year. Uh, And I still think they will get the prize. They should get the prize. But that's that's the rare exception where the discoveries, you know, have had that immediate an impact. Typically, it is 20 or 25 years.
1: So uh, you, you talked earlier about um, the importance of mentoring and linked to that within the mentoring relationship, the whole concept of storytelling. Um, many, many of our guests have mentioned that either they are mentors or that And they've mentioned that a mentor had a significant impact on the way they have been successful. So just sort of give our listeners an insight into a couple of your thoughts on on mentoring.
0: Yes, uh, this is a subject I would uh, gladly spend the full hour talking about. And again, in my book, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm, I have a whole chapter on mentoring. Uh, And I think there are some principles that everybody can use, but for me... Uh, One of the most important things about mentoring is that you have to individualize uh, what you do. Uh, There's no one size fits all. Uh, Some people are absolutely brilliant. Uh, Others are less so. Uh, Some are very independent. Some are more dependent. Uh, Each of them has to be dealt with in a different way. And for any given mentee, at different stages in their training, they have to be handled differently. So the, when you're first starting with them on day one, you handle them differently than you do three years in uh, when they've got a lot of experience. But to me, one of the most important things and the biggest challenge is uh, empowering trainees so that as they go forth into their own, again, I'm talking from the perspective of now, of course, of professional scientists. Uh, but. What I want them to do is I want them when they leave to have the appropriate expertise that they they need and knowledge. But I want them to have the confidence to be able to take on important problems and solve them. Now, the challenge for the mentor uh, in, in my business is this. And there are two diametrically opposite ways to fail here. One is you can uh, micromanage the trainee throughout their time in your lab, Uh, basically treat them almost like a technician, meet with them very frequently, telling them what to do. And the problem with doing that is when you finally meet with success, the trainee does not have sufficient intellectual ownership of what you've discovered, because in the back of their mind, or even the front of their mind is, well, you know, if Bob wasn't directing me like that, who knows if I could have done it. On the other extreme, if you stand back too far, they get nothing from you, okay? And even if they do pretty well, you've missed an opportunity to share with them all the things you've learned in your career. So, the key is to walk that line, manage them enough so that they have a higher chance of succeeding and learning from you, but not so much that you rob them of the intellectual ownership that is necessary to go forward with confidence to do your own thing later on. That, to me, is the single biggest challenge.
1: And, and, and that, I think, is absolutely true for mentoring in any environment in that there will be no learning if the mentor is over directive. And and also to some degree within the commercial world, there is that interesting balance because often in the commercial world, the mentor is not the boss or leader of the individual. They have their own boss, but the mentor is someone separate who is giving to some degree not on the job advice, but longer-term personal development advice on how they can deal with the here and now, but also turn that into the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. It's a very different situation.
1: So, but 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 the same applies in both of the situations, because I think your comments about mentoring and how you do mentoring absolutely apply to the fundamentals of leadership if you're leading somebody in a team. Because somebody who joins your team, at this point in time, you can lead in a certain way, you can delegate to in a certain way. But in three years time, when they're significantly more experienced, you have to change the equation. Because if you, start, if you start micromanaging them once they've been doing the job for three years, they're not going to be too happy. Absolutely correct. Couldn't agree more. And it's, it's, it's this, you know, your beautiful point about, above all, it's not about you who is the mentor. It is about the person that you are mentoring and matching their needs as, as much as you can. Um, and, and, but so many mentors get it wrong. So many mentors think that you know, this, is, this is my opportunity to download all of my experience on this poor, unsuspecting person, and that it will make them a better person.
0: I can tell you as well that uh, I, uh, I know some scientists, outstanding scientists, uh, Nobel laureates, who are terrible mentors for just this reason. They're completely overbearing. I know one guy, I won't mention his name, he's deceased, brilliant scientist, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, not a single one of his trainees ever went on to a career of great acclaim, not one, which is unusual. But typically, people who win Nobel Prizes, if you look at their scientific lineages and the people who trained with them, uh, it's usually many superstars. Uh, but I know of Nobel Prize winning scientists who have essentially produced few or in this case virtually no body who went on to a distinguished career and the reason is and i know it because i know knew this person very well is he was so overbearing and and basically micromanaged everybody so they got a lot of great scientists done because he was brilliant but nobody was able to develop uh, sufficiently to go on and carry that tradition on on their own so the, the effectively
1: there was there, there was no empowerment but, but one of the, one of the things I, I definitely want to mention to, to listeners is you know, your, your book, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Stockholm. Listeners, you have to, you have to read the book. It, 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 is, it has got some really great insights into leadership, into life. Uh, it's, it's funny. There's some great stories because Bob is, is an amazing storyteller.
0: So what next? For you? Well, that's a good question. I'm approaching my 80th birthday uh, in a few months, and uh, I'm still fully at it. Uh, today is a uh, actually a bit of a big day for me. I have literally an hour ago finished three months of work writing what's called the competitive renewal of my NIH grant, which I've had for 51 years, which funds part of the effort in my laboratory uh and i went at it with the same uh drive and focus as i have and i have to do this every 4 or 5 years and it's competitive it'll be reviewed by a study section et cetera. and uh i just finished that the very final read through uh, congratulations thank you and it feels good uh and so i'm taking a deep breath and i'm saying to myself well what now Now back to the writing papers, because for the last few months, uh, you know, people have been clamoring, Bob, we've got to get this manuscript submitted to a journal. And I say, well, I'm totally focused on the grant. So now I finished that, moving on. I will have to face the reality as I move into my 80s that I guess I won't be doing this forever. Uh, So I'll have to be thinking about, you know, the next stage. But these grants are for four or five years. So maybe this I'll I'll revisit that in four or five years. That's absolutely
1: amazing. Although I do know sometimes you do take the opportunity to slip away to the beach.
0: Absolutely, I've just come back from uh, a wonderful beach trip with my my wife and uh, mother-in-law and sister-in-law. And earlier in the summer, I have five children, as I mentioned, all married with. I have grand, six grandchildren, uh, and uh, very devoted to all of them. We spent. Every summer, we have a family tradition. Uh, There are 20 of us in all. We go to uh, a beach, and we all stay in one house, typically 10 or 11 bedrooms, uh, and we just enjoy each other's company. That was just a month ago. So, yeah, family is very, very important to me. And it it should be to everybody. So, finally, how can people learn
1: more about what you do? I suppose it's just read the book.
0: I think so. You know, for people. Uh, Obviously, I don't expect them to go to the scientific journals and read the Journal of Molecular Biology or the Journal of Biological Chemistry. But in my book, The Funny Thing Happened uh, on the Way to Stockholm, which you were kind enough to mention, uh, woven throughout that uh, is the story of my research. And in fact, to make it easy on people, uh, a lot of the science is put in a separate section Uh, so that you can dip into it as much as you want. But it's written at a lay level. It's not written for scientists. So I think if they want to learn more about receptors, which is a fascinating topic, uh, I think the best way in is the book.
1: I I absolutely agree. Having dived into various medical scientific papers over my life, I think we'll stick to your book. Because, uh, you know, more than five lines of a medical scientific paper, most of us will be completely lost. Bob, thank you so much for your time. It's been great fun. It's been insightful. There's some amazing, both insights and actually picking up on what you said, ideas for action that our listeners can use. So uh, all I can say is just thank you. It's It's been absolutely amazing. Congratulations on your achievement with the prize. And to be blunt from all of us who take prescription drugs,
0: thank you for your work. Well, thank you very much, Chris. I've enjoyed chatting with you.
1: Well, listeners, there certainly is a lot to reflect on there and a lot that you can do something about tomorrow. Amazing story. I think one of the most interesting points was about the level of failure within scientific research, Bob quoting that even in his best years, he probably only had 30% success, which meant that essentially 70% of things he tried failed. Now there are a couple of really powerful points there to pick up on. Firstly, that being in an environment where you have that level of failure means you have to have the right mindset to keep going with determination to achieve your vision and that that vision is motivating you to do so. But on a wider point, if you, for all of us, if you want to move forwards, if you want to grow and develop yourself, your team, your organization, you have to try new things. And that inevitably involves both risk and potential failure. But as Bob expressed, failure isn't necessarily as bad as you might think, because naturally it then enables you to more accurately focus in on potential successful options for action. And if you don't try new things, you'll just do what you've always done and the world will move on anyway, leaving you behind. Certainly the fact that Bob has been doing this research for nearly 50 years and his work has benefited all of us listeners in our daily lives, plus the fact he's also developed scientists who have then gone on to make further discoveries which have benefited us all, is just simply amazing. So maybe identify one idea for action you've heard from Bob and go and start to make it happen between now and our next episode. Don't forget that in a week, I'll be giving a more in-depth view of my key takeaways from Bob, my insights and ideas for action in reflections on the top. And if you've used any of the insights you've got from previous perspectives from the top guests and they've helped you, I'd be delighted to hear your success stories. And don't forget to sign up the website so you don't miss any of the great future guests coming out. Thanks for tuning in. Check out the show notes from today's episodes at perspectivesfromthetop.com, where you can not only enjoy additional resources from today's show, but all previous ones. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts so you don't miss any. And if you really enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating and review. Have a question or comment? Let's discuss it. Message me on LinkedIn. Perspectives from the Top is produced in collaboration with Detroit Podcast Studios. So have a successful week. Use today's new learnings and actions. And remember, it's onwards and upwards. See you next time on Perspectives from the Top.